2021 Wellness Retreat is an opportunity for clinicians and non-clinicians to enjoy fall in Tennessee and maybe even a leaf change while you take a deep dive into learning about the mind-body connection and strategies for improving your overall well-being. Up to 21 CEUs will be available for clinicians, but again, you don't need to be a clinician to attend. The retreat is being held October 20th through 23rd at Cumberland Mountain State Park and is limited to 60 people to allow me to have plenty of time to interact with everyone. Go to allceus.com wellness to see the detailed schedule and download the registration form. I look forward to seeing you. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation, The Unique Needs of Children in Foster Care. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. We're going to explore guess what? Some unique stressors for the child as well as for caregivers in the foster care system. According to the 2014 AFCARS data, approximately 53% of foster children remain in care for 12 months or more. That's a long time. When you've only been alive for two, three, five, eight years, a year is a really long freaking time. Um, but that also means, think about what that means in terms of attachment to foster parents as well as potential detachment from biological parents. We want to recognize that uh, children do need to accommodate quite a bit cognitively when they move into foster care. 80% of youth involved in the child welfare system require mental health intervention and services due to developmental, behavioral, or emotional issues. And we're going to talk about that a lot because unfortunately, a lot of times children who are in foster care are almost de facto placed in uh, special education classes. And that's not necessarily the most helpful environment. And we'll explore why as we go through this. Excessive amounts of cortisol and chronic HPA axis activation, where have you heard that before, disrupts developing brain circuits. Just like for adults, chronic HPA axis activation and too much cortisol creates a neurotoxic environment, and it starts pairing back neurons. In the child and adolescent brain, remember that is kind of like a vase a clay vase that you're making that hasn't gone into the kiln yet. So it is much easier to damage it than it is once it comes out of the kiln. So when, we, when we're thinking about brain development, we want to think about that adolescent brain being much more malleable. Now, the good thing is it means it can recover um, and, and be, have a little more plasticity maybe than someone who's older. Um, but it also means that the degree of integrity disruption can be significantly greater. So the uh, excessive HPA axis activation disrupts developing brain circuits and increases the risk for stress-related diseases and cognitive impairment well into the adult years. Well into the adult years. So it's not just as soon as this stressor goes away, everything's going to be hunky-dory. No. You know, when we start disrupting those brain circuits and disrupting the development, some of them are not going to repair. So the person may struggle with cognitive, emotional dysregulation, or even physical issues like uh, autoimmune issues that developed as a result of that high stress. Providing supportive, responsive relationships as early in life as possible can prevent or even sometimes reverse 
the damaging effects of toxic stress. Now, there, there's a lot of different types of toxic stress that people can experience. Uh, they've done one study and it has nothing to do with foster care, um, but it does potentially um, impact some children who are in foster care if they're born substance exposed because being in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, has been shown based on um, monitoring of the vitals and everything of the infants. Being in the NICU can be toxically stressful. There's lots of noise. You know, no matter how much the, the neonatal nurses try to keep it calm and quiet and subdued in there, there's always something dinging, something buzzing, something somewhere going off. I, we spent, you know, months in the NICU with my son. So I can tell you it is a noisy environment. And actually when he came home for the first couple of months, he didn't sleep very well if it was quiet in our house because he was so used to, he had accommodated to that ambient noise. But my point being that, um, you know, even children who are in the NICU or ex who experience toxic stress early on do have the ability to accommodate. Just like an older person who has a stroke, for example, they may lose the ability to speak or, you know, part of the functioning on half of the one side of their body or something. But a lot of people are able to recover partly, mostly, or sometimes even fully after a stroke. So the brain does really awesome things. We've talked before about adverse childhood experiences, but let's talk about it again <laughs> because children who are in foster care have adverse childhood experiences and generally are in that category where they have four or more adverse childhood experiences. And four or more ACEs is associated with a whole bunch more, a whole cascade of additional health and mental health issues as opposed to people who have fewer ACEs. The more ACEs children have, the worse their prognosis for later in life. Part of that is because of the changes in their brain, their changes in their brain chemistry that also alters some of their physiological chemistry. And as I mentioned earlier, can promote the development of early onset autoimmune disorders that can promote the development of, um, you know, anxiety, depression, and makes them more susceptible to addiction and even um, some other stress-related health issues like hypertension later in life. So abuse, you know, that goes without saying. That is an adverse traumatic childhood experiences. Physical, sexual, emotional abuse. Addiction or mental health issues in the family of origin is an adverse childhood experience because when the caregivers have an addiction or mental health issue, they are often, not always, they are often unable to effectively form a secure attachment. And that disrupted attachment is traumatic to the child. It thwarts development because the child no longer has a safe home base, so to speak, from which to explore and to which they can return should they encounter adversity. Abandonment is another one of those big, you know, subheadings in adverse childhood experiences. If a parent leaves, you know, goes out for cigarettes one day and never comes back, um, or goes to jail or prison, um, or heaven forbid, passes away, you know, that's traumatic to anybody. Um, 
children who are in the foster care system have been separated from their caregivers. So there is a certain feeling for some children of abandonment. They're like, where did mommy go? Where did daddy go? I don't understand. Especially really young children. They don't get it. Um, think about, you know, their framework, their point of view, their understanding of the world. Um, think about children who don't yet have object permanence. You know, when parents go away, it's like, where, where'd they go? Uh, so there is a lot of, there are a lot of challenges around just the fact that the child is being separated from their primary caregiver. Additionally, in foster care, children often experience frequent placement transitions. So, you know, they may go to one foster care home and it's not a good fit, or they go to an emergency foster care placement and they're transferred to another foster care placement, um, and then maybe back home and then through the system again, you know, there's a lot of, oftentimes there's a lot of transition. So that can cause the child to have no opportunity to develop a secure attachment. Just as soon as they start feeling safe somewhere, all of a sudden their life is upended again and they're toting their bags to the next place. They don't have any, any place that they can actually, you know, think of as home. They don't have a connection. They don't form, a, they start not forming attachments with places even. It's like, this is where I'm hanging my hat today. That's hard for adults. Think about how terrifying that must be for children who know that they rely on adults to survive. Children who are in foster care often, unfortunately, have to change schools, which means they're also being separated from their friends. Um, this is unfortunate, but because our foster care system is overwhelmed and, you know, well, it's overwhelmed right now, uh, we often have children that end up getting placed in foster care homes that are in different school districts or like zone, maybe zoned for a different school in the same district. So they have to leave their friends. And... I know the people that work in the foster care system and Department of Children and Families do their God's honest very best to try to put the children in the healthiest, safest environment possible. But there's just not enough foster homes. And there's not enough foster homes in any one location most of the time to accommodate all of the children. So there has to be, unfortunately, some transitions. We need to recognize how hard this is. I grew up in Indianapolis which is a um, city that has a military base. So a lot of my friends in high school, you know, they knew they were only going to be there for two years. But when they got their new duty assignment, their new station assignment, they'd moved as a family. They always could count on one another. They always could count on some expectation of what to expect at the next base. It wasn't going from, you know, one culture to a completely different culture, which is what happens a lot of times for children who are in foster care. Not only are they transitioning, they're transitioning by themselves. They don't have their friends. They don't have their family. And oftentimes they're going to a, another placement, another family that may have an entirely different culture. 
Frequent placement transitions may be a particular issue for children of substance abusing parents because of repeated unification and separation. Now, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I know when I worked in dependency drug court and I worked in residential treatment, there was, it was not uncommon for children to be removed from their parents, put in foster care, return to their parents, their parents would relapse, they'd return to foster care, and it was this vicious, vicious cycle. So it is important to recognize that um, some people, because of substance abuse, because of mental health issues, because of domestic violence, there are reasons um, that, you know, whatever reason the child is taken away, the person the, the parents, the, the biological parents may not um, be able to sustain recovery. So we do want to recognize this. Children don't understand why. Why is caregiver choosing to go out and use cocaine when they know it's going to put me back in foster care? Don't they care about me? Why is caregiver choosing to stay out all night and party instead of tucking me into bed. Children may not understand this and they take it personally because that's the only way they know how to understand it. They can't step back and go, oh, you know, I see my caregivers really struggling with bipolar disorder or struggling with life and, you know, having difficulty and it has nothing to do with me. You know, they just, they can't cope. Children can't do that. That's not how they're wired. They're wired to take things kind of personally and they see what's in front of them. They're not able to use abstract thinking until they get much older. Go back to Piaget's stages of cognitive development to review that, but whatever. Children may experience um, challenges because they have loyalty to their parents. And when they have these placement transitions, they may end up in a foster placement. And maybe it's a perfectly fine foster placement. But because the child is loyal to their parents, they feel disloyal if they are following the rules, if they are behaving in their foster placement. And sometimes they think, well, if I act up enough, maybe they'll just send me back home. And finally, frequent placement transitions can lead to disempowerment of the child. The child just feeling helpless and going, I give up. Because their perspective is not being considered in agency decisions at all. You know, would you rather be in this home or this home? Would you rather be in this home with five other foster children, but you can stay in your the elementary school that you're going to now, or would you rather be in, you know, a one-on-one -on -one situation, but you'd have to change schools? A lot of times children are not even asked. They're, if there's an option, they're not given the opportunity to make a choice. So when we can, empowering children as much as possible is helpful. Now, a lot of times as counselors, social workers, pastors, you know, that is out of our hands. You know, we're coming in after that decision has been made, but we can advocate with social services. Once we get involved with a child, especially one um, who's either at risk of being put in foster care or who's already had a foster care placement, we can step in and we can 
give our two cents. We can advocate as much as possible for the child. Other potential issues, low self-esteem. Well, it feels pretty daggum bad. If I would think about it as, you know, from a two-year-old or a five-year-old's perspective that my caregiver is letting people take me away or my, par- my caregiver can't even pay attention to me. You know, some of the factors that children in foster care deal with aren't as much from foster care itself, but from the adverse childhood experiences that led to them being removed from their placement. So they may have felt rejected by their caregivers, abusive caregivers, neglectful caregivers, caregivers that had addictions or mental health issues that just couldn't or wouldn't connect with the child emotionally or physically. That hurts a kid's self-esteem when when they can't trust their caregivers. There's also stigma associated with being a quote foster kid. Um, when you are, when they're transitioned to a new school, for example, because of this new placement, then people are like, well, why are you coming in the middle of the year? What's going on? What's your story? Blah, blah, blah. And a lot of times it gets out that the child is a foster child. And that can be stigmatizing. And kids can be mean. Kids can be um, unkind. And, and sometimes they don't even mean to be. They, they may say things based on what they've heard on TV or what they've seen, and they don't mean to be ugly or stigmatizing, but it may come out that way. So we do need to pay attention to any issues like that are going, that are going on. It's important to do as much as we can in the school systems and with foster parents to work on reducing stigma and reducing stigmatizing language. Prenatal substance exposure uh, can result in children being put in foster care, which can also, but prenatal substance exposure can result in cognitive and developmental delays. Uh, Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is one, but we also have uh, developmental delays and potential cognitive issues in children who are exposed to Uh, nicotine to marijuana, um, as well as alcohol and even opioids. So we know that that drugs impact the fetus. Now, that doesn't mean that every child that is born, you know, exposed to nicotine, for example, they're not going to be taken out of their placement. But we do know that children who are involved in foster care often come from families in which there's a higher likelihood that there was substance use during the pregnancy. Malnutrition is another issue that can thwart cognitive development. And a lot of children, um, in the video we did a few weeks back on uh, child abuse and neglect, the majority of deaths of children actually are due to severe neglect and not to abuse. And I don't remember what the number was, but that was shocking to me. If you have caregivers who are unable to caregive, they're unable to attach, they're barely able to feed themselves because they are so depressed. They are so manic. They are 
in a psychotic episode, or they are so immersed in their addiction that they're not remembering to eat. They're not feeding themselves or they're passing out, you know, and, and not eating. Well, then they're obviously not feeding the children. And the children, uh, even the ones that are old enough to make their own peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or whatever it is that they're surviving on, that's not well-rounded nutrition. Just like I preach all the time, we need a variety of foods and a variety of nutrients for our bodies and our brains to be healthy. So a child who is subsisting on exclusively, you know, cereal and if they're lucky, cereal and milk and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, they're not getting that full complement of vitamins and minerals they need. If they're hungry, we know, which is why we have so many school nutrition programs that provide breakfast. If they're hungry, they're not going to be able to function as well at school. And some children, when they go into foster care, will even hoard food because they're afraid that they won't have more food and that they're going to be hungry again. So they may ration their food, so to speak. So they're never full, but they're, they're never starving either. And so it's important that we watch children's feeding behaviors when they're in foster care to make sure that they are eating healthfully and that they are, um, confident that they're going to get the nutrition and the food that they need. Uh, but malnutrition can play a big issue in the cognitive and developmental issues that have to be addressed while the child is in foster care. Foster care is an active intervention to help a child recover from severe adverse childhood experiences. You know, that's, you know, generally the, the department tries not to take kids from their home unless it, the, the trauma, unless the situation is so, so severe that their safety is at risk. Automatic placement in special education or biased differential diagnosis. I didn't know how else to say that. A lot of times people will see a foster child and they will automatically interpret oppositional behaviors as oppositional defiant. They will automatically interpret um, certain behaviors or um, learning challenges to mean the child has cognitive delays or developmental delays or is um, um, has some sort of emotional or cognitive uh, mental health issue that has to be dealt with in a special education classroom. We need to really do a better job of stepping back and going, what's going on? Let's look at the child in context, in, in this relationship, in this environment, what's going on? You know, is it possible, for example, that if little Johnny is put in foster care, you know, those first few days are going to be really rough. I don't care who you are and how old you are. It's going to be rough. Um, but once Johnny starts developing a sense of trust and getting re-nourished and getting adequate sleep, do Johnny's behaviors change? A lot of times there's an expectation that foster children are going to act out. There's a belief that acting out is oppositional defiant instead of stepping back and going, 
what is this child communicating to me through their behavior? And I know you guys get tired of me saying that, but behavior is communication. Cultural differences are also an issue. Obviously, if you're taking a child from one, a family where they have a particular culture and you're plopping them into a family that has an entirely different culture, that is going to be really exhausting and traumatic. But there can also be a lot of cultural var variability even between, you know, different or even within a culture. So we don't want to assume that just because you're placing a child who is Hispanic with a family who is Hispanic, that everything's hunky-dory. There are a lot of differences. Um, just because you're placing people based on their ethnicity um, is not a guarantee by any means that it's going to be a similar culture. So we do want to recognize that. And again, the foster care system is extremely strapped for homes. So it's often not going to be possible to put them into a, what I call a healthy mirror culture, you know, taking a culture that is as close to possible as possible to the one that, you know, they were growing up in and putting them in a similar culture that's healthier functioning. Uh, that's often not super possible. So we do need to recognize that this is really confusing for a lot of children to go from one thing to another. And school assignments. Children who are in foster care may struggle with school assignments. They may not want to go to school. They may not want to participate in school assignments or school assignments and or school assignments may trigger grief and depression because of the nature of the assignment or the language used. School assignments that involve family trees some children don't know what their family tree is, or doing it reminds them of the losses they've experienced. Autobiographies. You know, when children, well, when anybody is experiencing extreme stress, one of the brain's ways of protecting them is to make memories fuzzier. Um, and, and there's actually neurochemical bases for that. Um, but when we're under extreme stress, we tend to have much fuzzier memory. So asking a child to do an autobiography, they may not be able to remember big gaps in time. Um, or maybe you ask them to do, tell me what you did last summer. That's a real common one to start the school year. And maybe that's when the child got taken from their home and put in foster care. And that's just not a time they want to remember. So we do need to be sensitive to that. Baby picture contests, you know, the child may not, maybe the, if they do have any baby pictures, maybe they're with their birth parents and they don't have any contact with their birth parents right now, so they can't get those. And they show up to school going, I got nothing. You know, that's, that's challenging for the child. So it's really important that we advocate again and educate teachers and school systems about the things that could potentially be triggering for a child that's in foster care. And the language that we use in school as well as at in, in clinic and at home and just anywhere, um, such as you saying real parents um, instead of birth parents or simply uh, your caregivers. Because children may not, uh, children may feel rejected 
Children may have difficulty understanding what's going on when they're in foster care. And, you know, who is this person I'm staying with? And, you know, foster parents, real parents, biological parents, there's so many different terms. You know, we're talking about kids that are knee high to a grasshopper. You know, let's not get too technical. Let A lot of times it can be helpful just to ask the child what you want to, how you want to refer to them. Um, you know, how do you want us to refer to your mom and dad or your caregivers or whatever, uh, you want to start out with and let them, the child tell you what to call them. Um, and for in, in, in foster care placements, when foster parents use, um, words like these are my children, these are my biological children, and this is my foster child. You know, they're using their words. You know, I did it with my arm, but when they use their words, they might as well just be using their arm and pushing that child out. These are my child. These are my biological children. And these are my foster children instead of these are our children. Um, so when they are separated out or differentiated, it can leave the child feeling excluded. Uh, Denise, uh, says, she has a current student in the foster system having difficulty with a family tree project, and the majority of staff couldn't understand why the child was acting out. Um, and it's taken a lot of teaching the staff how to be more sensitive to language and school and family product projects. And that acting out goes back to, you know, that's so exactly what I was saying. Teachers counselors even sometimes see the acting out as the child being resistant. And instead of saying, what is this communicating? And in this particular case, my guess would be this is communicating. It really hurts to think about this because I don't have the answers and I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to, I'm afraid I'm going to fail. It makes me feel different. You know, there's a lot of other, um, uh, things that that could be saying. So it is important to educate staff that, that behaviors are generally, if we, I wish we could get away from that good or bad label. What is the behavior saying to the teacher? What is the behavior saying to the parent? Birth family visits can also be another big issue in foster care. Because sometimes birth parents just ain't going to show up. And sometimes when they do show up, you don't know which version of the birth parent you're getting. Are you getting the happy version that's in recovery? Are you get going to get the stressed out version? What version of the parent is going to show up? Uh, so that's a lot for the child to deal with as well as the foster care parents. If the birth parents or the, um, yeah, we'll call them birth parents are attending, uh, inconsistently attending their, their visitation. A lot of times the foster care parents will start feeling edgy or anxious prior to a scheduled visit because they know from past experience that 30, 50% of the time, the Birth parents are not going to show up. It's going to end up triggering the child and there's going to be a lot of disruption, meltdown, you know, emotional fallout from it. Likewise, uh, 
you know, if they're not sure which version of the parent is going to show up, uh, especially if the foster parents are the ones that are supervising visitation. But even if, even if not, um, the foster parents may also start getting edgy because they're not sure if this is going to be a good visit or if this is going to be a highly conflictual visit. And, and we do want to make sure as counselors, uh, we're helping people identify, you know, if you start feeling edgy or if the child starts getting irritable, acting out prior to, or right after a, uh, visit from their family of origin, what is that behavior saying? And how can we help the child? Because generally when children act out, it means they're not feeling safe for some reason, or they need, they have a need that is not getting met. So what can we do to help them feel safer and more empowered? That's the basis of trauma-informed care for, you know, any living thing. How can we help them feel safe and more empowered? When the birth family visits, there can be a reawakening of the grief process for everybody involved. The child may have anger or, um, that reawakens anger at the parent that they were taken away. They may have guilt that's reawakened because they feel somehow it's their fault that they were taken away. Or maybe the caregiver told them it was their fault that they were taken away. The parent, the, the birth parent, it may reawaken anger when they see their child and they can't leave with their child, may reawaken anger that they're in this situation. And that can actually come out and get projected onto the child as well as the foster family and the system itself. Um, and their guilt, you know, it may reawaken guilt within them. And that can come out in a variety of different ways. In terms of the foster parents, uh, when the birth parent comes, if it is disruptive or painful to the child, that can arouse frustration and anger in the foster parents. Um, sometimes knowing why the child was taken out of their uh, family of origin can also um, ignite or, or trigger anger in the foster parents. Even if the birth parents are doing the right thing, every time they see the birth parent, they are reminded that you were abusing this child and, you know, now you're trying to make it all okay. And they may have difficulty with forgiveness. So it's important that we acknowledge the uh, threat-related emotions that are associated uh, with foster care for all three groups of people. And, you know, there's a whole, I could do multiple other classes on all of the feelings and challenges that uh, DCF workers go through. But right now we're just focused on the, focused on the family, so to speak. Uh, so we do want to recognize there's a, a minimum of three players here, the birth family, the foster family, and the child, him or herself. The child may experience depression and sadness with the birth parent's departure or their no-show. You know, when that birth parent has to leave, it can cause, um, you know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, sadness. 
you know, the child may fear that that parent's not going to come back or not know when they're going to come back. Depending on the age, it can intensify normal developmental separation anxiety. And there can be confusing or conflicting messages between the foster parents and the birth parents. The foster parents may want things done a certain way or tell the child that they should do things a certain way. And sometimes the birth parents feeling already disempowered may come in and during visitation say, oh no, honey, you don't have to do it that way. You do it the way mommy taught you to do it and undermine the foster parents. And, and it's really important to figure out what the messages are and ideally for the birth parents and the foster parents to be on the same page with the major messages that are being communicated to the child. Saying goodbye to the foster family when they're re reunified with their birth family can also be really exhausting and traumatic and gr grief promoting for people who are, for children who are in foster care. Um, you know, it is because they're in there for over a, a year in many, many cases, they develop a relationship with the foster family. Um, you know, for someone who is, you know, 18 months old, two years old, when they go into foster care and they leave when they're almost four, you know, that may be pretty much the only family that the child remembers. Uh, so we do want to recognize from the child's perspective, what does this feel like? I mean, they've been with this foster family for almost half their life now. And for some children, there may be fears about reunification. If they came from an environment that was, uh, especially one that was highly uh, abusive, they may fear going back. If they have a uh, caregiver who is abuses substances and they've been, been down this road before, they may fear that they're going to go back. It's going to be fine for six months and then we're going to be right back here again. So there can be a lot of ambivalence and fear around this. A lot of children in foster care because of um, attachment issues that are from their family of origin, they may have never developed a secure attachment to their primary caregiver. And because of frequent transitions and everything, a lot of children in foster care have disrupted attachment. This can lead to problems with affect regulation and dissociation. We know that when people are chronically stressed, when that HPA axis is chronically activated, it leads to, it causes emotional dysregulation. It causes the person to react more strongly to negative events than other people. They actually have a bigger dump of cortisol and norepinephrine and uh, glutamate and all that other stuff. It's not just behavioral, it's neurochemical. Um, and attachment, which we're going to talk about in a second, is the process, is the, a relationship in which a caregiver, in which somebody teaches the child how to cope with emotions, teaches the child how to cope with distress, helps the child feel safe so they don't have to be hypervigilant all of the time. Uh, 
so when they when children are not taught this then anything that happens when they're not taught how to deal with life how to man how to label and manage their emotions then that hpa axis is probably going to be hyperactivated because they never feel safe their emotions themselves feel threatening one of the ways they may cope with that is through dissociation you know they just they they check out they can't cope so they check out others may become aggressive there are a lot of variations in how children cope but a lot of it is due to difficulty with affect regulation as a result of impaired attachment they may have lack of impulse control and attentional problems well they're kids their impulse control is not fully developed yet anyway um, combine that with exaggerated uh, negative emotional reactions you know and and i don't like the word exaggerated that's what they use in the book a lot um but with this emotional dysregulation something happens you already have a person a, a, albeit a little person who does not yet have the capability for significant impulse control this is a skill they're still learning put on top of that in a lot of stress so they're on edge as it is then when anything else happens it just kind of throws them into that dysregulated environment and they may react impulsively as a protective mechanism they're trying to stay safe it's just like oh my gosh it's so out of control i need to get you away from me in addition they may have attentional problems they're hyper vigilant they are scanning for threats they're scanning for danger because the world feels much more dangerous because they've never had anybody tell them you know what you're safe i got your back they may have uh, a con controlling stance used in peer and caregiving relationships um, they try to be the parent they try to parent the parent uh, they may have cognitive impairments because of the um, hyperactivated uh, HPA axis and the resulting li literal changes in brain volume and matter they may have cognitive impairments and de delayed development they're at high risk for oppositional defiant disorder and aggression in middle childhood and low self-esteem and dissociation in adolescence um okay you know if you want to slap a label on it I would encourage uh really examining oppositional defiant behaviors in context to examine whether they are ODD or they are contextually appropriate for protection um and sometimes they may kind of go hand in hand because the child never felt safe and the only way they found to to keep themselves safe was to basically ignore the adults because the adults always hurt them people with disrupted attachment unfortunately tend to repeat the cycle because they were never taught how to have a healthy secure attachment and when the child is developing a new attachment to foster parents for example or adoptive parents particularly after there's been a disruption setbacks can occur rapidly and have serious consequences because it represents a current loss and reignites prior unresolved losses so if the child is in a foster placement for example 
and something happens and the foster parent gets angry with them and they feel rejected. Uh, the child, depending on their age, especially younger children, may take this as a personal rejection and think they've been, you know, kicked to the curb again. And that can cause a cascade of uh, negative um negative effects because the child says, okay, you don't want me now. So now nobody wants me. I'm back to where I was again. We, and it also re, reignites the other losses from other times that has happened, especially with their, in their family of origin. Now, in terms of um, kinship care, when children are placed in a relative placement, not all relatives want to take care of other relatives. It can interrupt the relative caregiver's plans, priorities, space, and privacy. And this can contribute to the kinship caregiver experiencing feelings of loss and grief and ambivalence. Um, if you are a grandparent taking care of your grandbabies and you never anticipated doing this, you thought you're, when you were retired, you were going to travel the world or, you know, whatever it was, um, but now all of a sudden, you've got a two-year-old that you're responsible for 365 days a year. That can cause some ambivalence and grieving of what you thought your, you know, golden years were going to be like. We want to make sure that the kinship caregiver is able to process those feelings so they don't come out um, inadvertently on, toward the child. Relative caregivers may also have feelings of guilt about and anger toward the biological parent. If the care, if the kinship caregiver, for example, is the parent of the child's parent, you know, if it's the child's grandparent, then the kinship caregiver may feel guilty that, you know, I created this situation. I, you know, I feel bad that I was such a crappy parent that you know, I en ended up creating this situation wh where now you're in foster care. Um, and, and I've had people use those words before, so I'm not trying to, um, put any, anybody into a, a box or anything, but there is sometimes guilt on the part of the kinship caregiver feeling like they caused this situation somehow. And in kinship care, more so than in, you know, traditional foster care, biological parents often try to fudge the rules or take advantage of the relative caregiver, you know, trying to get them to let them see the child without supervision or um, have visitation. Maybe they fail to show up for visitation and they call the, the kinship caregiver and go, oh, well, why don't, why don't you just let me come over today? Um, or they show up drunk or high and beg the kinship caregiver not to tell the uh, caseworker that they showed up for visitation this way. So there are issues in kinship care. Now, there are other issues that are positive. You know, the child may feel more at home, may feel more in their element if they're with grandparents or aunts or uncles. Or so let's talk real quickly about address. Uh, people hold preconceived notions about others based on, and this is the mnemonic address, 
age, disability, dress and presentation, religion and spirituality, ethnicity and culture, social class, and sexual orientation. So when you have a foster child plucked from their home and plopped into a new home, they walk in and these are some of the things that they're assessing right away. They're looking around going, okay, let me try to get a lay of the land and figure out what to expect. And based on prior schema, um, they are going to uh, make assumptions just like we all do. Likewise, the foster parents are going to see this foster child, this foster child, they're going to know where the foster child came from. They're going to know the family of origin, the history to a certain extent, and they're going to see the child's age, abilities, dress and presentation and attitude. And they will probably make certain assumptions from jump about that child. And it's really important for us as clinicians to explore those early on in the relationship and go, what did you expect out of, you know, foster parent Jane the first time you saw her? What did you think she was going to be like? And likewise, what did you think that, you know, little Tommy was going to be like when he first showed up? You may not do... wouldn't do this in, in a family session uh, because we want people to be able to freely talk. But it is important to process with each person, you know, what were your assumptions? What were your expectations, your biases when this happened? Children who've been in multiple foster homes may and, and probably do take their experiences from those prior foster homes and generalize them to new foster homes. So if they've been in a foster home with four other children before and they're getting put into another group foster home, they may assume that certain things are going to happen. If just like we have transference and countertransference and stuff, children do as well. So they may project expectations on their caregivers based on the, their visual appearance ba based on a variety of things. So we do want to consider how do these characteristics of address impact the foster's parents' expectations when they meet the foster child? How do these characteristics of address influence the foster child's expectations of the foster parents when they meet? Now, if you're dealing with a infant, probably not going to really apply here. But if you're dealing with a elementary school child or older, then this is going to be very um, potentially impactful. And how can we work to promote a more culturally sensitive and welcoming environment? As I've said earlier, and I've said in other presentations, we don't want to assume that people fit the mold of a particular culture. Everybody's an individual. Every family is unique. That gives us a starting point to say, okay, you know, you ascribe to these cultures. What aspects of those cultures do you embrace and what aspects don't you? You know, um, not everybody is fully acculturated, so to speak. So we do want to ask those things. We want to ask the children, you know, what's important to them. If going to church every Sunday or synagogue every Sunday is important to them, 
then, you know, that's something we need to try to make sure as, as best as possible we can accommodate, you know, what things are important to them. Personal, family, and cultural history shape schema and impact the answers to the questions. Can I trust you? Will you help me or harm me or heaven forbid both? And, and we see this a lot in, in situations where um, parents are just really struggling that they may be domestic violence wheel, for example. Things may be good for a short period of time. And then there's a relapse. So the caregiver is both loving and harming, you know, kind of at the same time. And third, do you understand me? Do you have any clue what's going on in this little head of mine? And and so it's important that we encourage foster parents um, and teachers and, you know, everybody else to communicate with the child, you know, help me understand what's going on with you. Sometimes the child may not have the words. So sometimes we can paraphrase for them. You know, I'm wondering if you are feeling this way or you're not sure how they feel and, and you can ask them for, you know, an example or can you, can you tell me sometimes even for little kids, you can ask them, what animal do you feel like and why? And sometimes they will tell you, maybe I feel like a bunny rabbit that's, that's scared and hiding in a burrow. You know, I don't know. How might each of your assumptions affect your current interactions? We need to recognize that our assumptions affect interactions. Period. End of story. They are going to shade the lens through which we see things. How might the way your system is organized and the role you play in your system contribute to or disconfirm this person's assumptions about you? So if you're a foster parent, you know, what role is it that you play and how does this contribute or disconfirm the child's assumptions about you? Behavior is communication. So we need to prepare people ahead of time. What behaviors might a child exhibit who believes they cannot trust you? What behaviors might a child exhibit who believes they may be harmed by you or by somebody else? And what behaviors might a child exhibit who believes they do not feel understood? So these are three big questions we need to ask to anticipate behaviors and be able to sort of head them off in the past or when they do occur, it at least gives us a heads up as to, okay, I think I might have a clue where this is coming from. In terms of attachment, consistency, you want to be the go-to person that responds in an attentive, predictable manner. You want to be responsive to the child. So you're the go-to person. They know if they come to you, you know, they can tell you things and you're not going to freak the freak out. You are consistent. They can come to you. They can tell you anything and you're going to handle it. Responsiveness means you provide developmentally appropriate physical, emotional, and cognitive support, including helping them learn to learn to label feelings, triggers, and warning signs like for anger or anxiety. And you're going to help them develop coping and distress tolerance skills. So for young kids, if they're dysregulating, they may, you know, 
be throwing a temper tantrum. And sometimes you may need to let them do that for a second. At that point, they may want to hug. They may not. But then you can say, okay, I see that you're feeling really overwhelmed or you're really angry. Let's take a couple deep breaths together and then do it with them. And then proceed to move to the next step and however you're going to help them cope with that. Attention means proactive attention, not just only responding when the child is melting down or needs something, but showing that you care and you're interested in what their thoughts, wants, and needs are. Providing validation and empathy, trying to see the situation from the child's perspective, validating how scary it must be. You know, from your perspective, you're like, you're safe, you're fine, this is foster care, you know, I am going to do my best to make this a great time. But to the kid, it's like, crap, I have no idea what to expect. And provide support when things go wrong, um, encouraging words, those sorts of things, uh, encourage them to explore and attempt new things. Young traumatized children's reactions and behaviors are best understood in the context of the current relationship. Foster care is an active intervention with the goal of helping the young child recover from their traumatic experience. It's not just a place to stay. It's not just housing. The foster or resource parent uh, is an essential partner in the recovery of the young child. That means we need to involve them in the process. We need to work with them. We need to help them process their feelings as well as the child's. And transitions for young children should be carefully planned and try to empower the child as much as possible in this situation. Whenever they can be given choices, Try to let them have choices. There are a lot more issues, obviously, that children who are in foster care struggle with, but this is Foster Care Awareness Month. Um, so I did want to touch on this to help us recognize what we can do to assist families who are foster care families, assist families with children in foster care, assist foster care children, and to advocate within the system at large schools, doctor's offices, etc., cetera, um, to help people better understand behavior as communication that comes from a place of recovery from trauma. 